continue worshiping together today, please rise as you are able, and you may turn in your favorite Bible app or Pew Bible and receive this reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, selected verses from chapter 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. And then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowds making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout that district. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Good morning. What a joy it is to be home at Foundry. I want to thank Pastor Ben for the invitation and the entire pastoral team who have been so gracious in helping me navigate being on this side of Foundry, which is not where I'm normally seated. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have heard Pastor Ginger and countless other pastors offer a form of that opening for as long as I've gone to church. And I confess to you today that this plea takes on a new and special meaning because I stand before you as someone who may have given countless public talks, but never have I stood in a pulpit and been asked to reflect on the words of God. This is my way of asking you for a little leniency for a first-timer. If ever I was going to be asked to preach, however, I couldn't be more pleased that it comes at the convergence of two moments. The first is that it's Pride Sunday. As a gay man, I'm Honored to be here to share thoughts and reflections under the sermon series we begin today at Foundry of Lessons from the Journey. And perhaps more importantly, it is the second that Pastor Ginger is back next week and Pastor David is preaching, so if this really bombs, the pros are back next week and you're in luck. <laughs> I confess to you 
that as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, I come to you this Pride Sunday deeply concerned. When I was coming out in the 1990s, I remember that thinking that the world for LGBTQ folks was pretty scary. The stigma around HIV and AIDS was still acute, while the medical solutions were still too few. We were unable to visit our partners in intensive care units as we weren't seen as family, and gay marriage was a far-off dream. It was still the case that some in the Gay Men's Chorus of Washington, D.C. would withhold their names as singing members from the printed program because they would be fired if their employers saw them there. And 15 years ago, almost this month, my dear friend Bishop Gene Robinson was consecrated wearing a bulletproof vest because some thought it okay to use lethal force to stop a gay man from being consecrated a bishop in mainstream Christendom. In those days, our community's acronym was shorter. We had yet to fully contemplate or embrace issues of gender identity, and our siblings in the trans community didn't receive the welcome they needed and deserved. And in the 1990s, the thought of declaring one's pronouns would have been seen as nothing more than a bastardization of grammar. Over the course of the past couple of decades, though, we started to see reasons for hope. Equality laws were advancing, our stories were becoming a part of mainstream culture, and even our own beloved foundry took a stand in 1995 that all would be welcome in this sacred place, and it only made us stronger. While I couldn't have fathomed it in my earliest days as an out gay man, I married my husband almost three years ago, and we share a rich and a wonderful life together. While there was and is much, much work to do, I started to believe that truly in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the arc of the moral universe may indeed be long, but it was bending toward justice. And yet, in the past few years, we've seen too many states passing anti-LGBTQ laws. Our trans siblings are being targeted and painted as violent, even though they are the victims of some of the greatest violence we've ever seen. And the thought of a drag queen reading to a young person has been held up as somehow scarier than the senseless gun violence wreaking havoc on our schools and our communities. And just last week, the human rights campaign declared a national state of emergency for the entire LGBTQ community in this country. In short, we've turned back time in so many ways to the LGBTQ community being painted as the face of what's wrong in this nation. So on this Pride Sunday, I stand before you deeply, deeply alarmed. And I'm sad to admit that for the first time in many years, while I've never been more proud to be a member of this rainbow community, I find myself afraid afraid for the narratives that live in the hearts of so many, afraid for the future of the laws that protect my marriage, and some days, afraid of my ability to escape violence simply for who I am and for whom I love. It's not lost on me, standing here, how lucky I am, how lucky we all are to be a member of this welcome, worshiping community. And yet I admit to you today that I am afraid for my LGBTQ siblings who don't even have a safe place to worship. 
Some of you may know that I serve as president of Chautauqua Institution in Western New York. Chautauqua will be 150 years old next year. It's a storied place that has sat at the intersection of the nation's most pressing conversations. President Franklin D. Roosevelt gave his I Hate War speech from Chautauqua. Chautauqua played heavily in the women's suffrage movement and to this day invites to its stages and its grounds the leading speakers, thinkers, and preachers of our time to discuss and unpack the most pressing issues that our society is facing. It's a sacred place that was created to help all who wanted to make the world a better place, understand the thorniness of issues, to be educated about divergent viewpoints, and to craft a dynamic response through that education. It's a place that invites all of humanity's brokenness to be laid bare while also offering so many moments of joy. That interplay between what's hard and what's wonderful creates a special magic at Chautauqua, and I'm deeply honored to be a part of its leadership and to see some of my friends from Chautauqua here today. And while all that Chautauqua stands for should be celebrated, I'm struck by how polarized our world is, how much we struggle to hear disparate voices, and how quickly we want to silence those who do not think like us, act like us, or believe what we believe, even if it means resorting to violence. That violence was brought to Chautauqua last summer when a young man viciously stabs author Salman Rushdie more than 20 times on the stage of our amphitheater just before a talk that was intended to highlight freedom of speech and expression and the power of storytelling to combat ignorance, hatred, and bigotry. I watched with my own eyes what happens when silencing another is seen as a victory. It dawns on me on this Pride Sunday how much people struggle to live in the duality of brokenness and joy. As a society, we seem to struggle to live with duality or tension at all. If one doesn't believe what another believes, that person will at a minimum ensure that they don't have to engage with a different viewpoint. If that doesn't work, perhaps violence will work. We see it too often. We live in a society that demands that we cancel voices we don't want to hear, or we demonize those voices to make them acceptable victims of violence. We recently lost Dr. Robert Zimmer, the longtime president of the University of Chicago, who was a tireless advocate of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And I'm reminded of something he said just a few years ago. He noted of this time that fundamentally, people are very comfortable with free expression for those that they agree with. And for those they find disagreeable or wrong, they're not that eager to have people hear them at all. Recently at Chautauqua, I found my own community struggling with this. When we present speakers or preachers or artists who disagree with a particular mindset, whether that mindset is left or right or in the center, there are an increasingly number that claim we should not give our stages over to these voices because they find alternative viewpoints disagreeable. And to double down, it's often the case that if we disagree with any position a person holds, we want to disqualify the entire person from being able to publicly speak on any topic. It's as if the person holding one contrary viewpoint has to be completely erased as a person if we disagree with a specific thought they might have. 
a columnist in the Washington Post recently noted that expressions of intolerance and bigotry that once were relegated to the fringes are migrating to the center at the cost of common ground and the common good. It's almost as if the very notion that there might be a common ground or a common good is something we've decided we shouldn't work toward unless that common ground or common good is our definition of those two phrases. At this point in my reflection, if you're thinking that my first time out offering the meditations of my heart involve only gloom and doom, I would understand. But that's not the main point of my reflection. On this Pride Sunday, I'm reflective of how difficult it's become to live with the duality, the duality of thoughts, of perspectives, of believing that for some to win, others must lose. But I'm also hopeful because today's gospel reading from Matthew reminds us that it doesn't need to be that way. We hear today in Matthew an answer to this tension of our time in the example that Jesus provides. As he so often does, Jesus breaks through the cultural clutter and gives us such an obvious answer. So often, our friend Jesus gets used as a weapon in our culture wars. Those who feel marginalized rightfully say that Jesus would rather hang out with those on the margins. Others go for a literal translation of our sacred texts to provide reasons to exclude others, weaponizing what was intended to be messages of love to set up a class system of right and wrong. But Matthew tells us that we have so much to be hopeful for on this Pride Sunday. We're presented with a great example of an us-them dilemma in two women in need of healing. Matthew tells us that Jesus is asked to heal the daughter of the very people trying to discredit his teachings, the privileged elite. He also introduces us to a woman who has suffered for more than a decade, a woman who would most certainly be considered on the margins of what society understood at the time. What a perfect metaphor for our great debates in today's society. Who deserves the redeeming love of Jesus Christ? Or for that matter, who deserves our love? Is it the privilege to already have so much? Or the woman whose society has overlooked for far too long? So what does Jesus do in this dilemma? He chooses not to choose. He heals the 12-year-old daughter of the privileged and the woman who has suffered for 12 years. He calls both his daughter. He restores both after a request for help is made. And he doesn't distinguish or make a claim that one is worthy over the other. Matthew reminds us that Jesus does not look at what is his to do as an either-or choice. There's no litmus test for who is worthy or who is not worthy. There's not an emphasis on who is right, but rather on who is suffering. So what can we take from this lesson of a Jesus who's present to all who are afflicted? How might we make a difference? Uh, how might we make a different choice in this polarized world where we're too ready to classify winners and losers, right and wrong, justice and injustice? Where do we see Jesus working in and among us? And what are our modern day examples that might provide another way for us to tackle the divisiveness of these times? At my own beloved Chautauqua on that fateful day in August when Mr. Rushdie was attacked, scores of Chautauquans did something countercultural. Instead of running away from horrific violence, they ran toward it. 
Not only did they immobilize the assailant until police could secure him, doctors and nurses and non-medical members of the audience rushed to provide life-saving care. I was so glad recently to see Mr. Rushdie making public appearances again, and in his first one accepting an award for his courage, he noted the courage of Chautauquans who very well saved his life. And while I hope that we and you never again have reason to run toward violence, I do wonder on this Pride Sunday, what might it look like to walk toward another, just one step, who may hold an opposing view to our own? One of my favorite trips when I worked for Youth for Understanding was to accompany the Gay Men's Chorus of Washington on a civil rights tour to Cuba under the patronage of Mariela Castro. We spent in the week in a country with a less than stellar LGBTQ civil rights record, not protesting, but singing, bringing expressions of love to all that wished to listen and probably some that didn't. I have thought about that trip countless times since then. We could have chosen not to go. We could have said that the government's policies were so outrageous that we couldn't be seen there, that we wouldn't become a soundbite or an odd symbol of endorsement by participating. But I'm glad we didn't do that. Instead, we chose to meet a lack of understanding with love. And we realized that almost no country, and especially no person, is monolithic, including those in power. In 2022, the country passed the Cuban Family Code referendum, which brought legal recognition to gay marriage and same-sex adoption. And while I'm certainly not drawing a straight line between our trip and that massive social change, I'd like to think that a few hearts and minds were changed by our presence because we sat in the duality and the complexity and the messiness of humanity. How different could our world be if each of us refused to view situations as a zero-sum game? There are many reasons I'm proud to stand witness as a member of the LGBTQ community but perhaps the greatest one of all is that our community strives for full, not selective, inclusion. Today at Foundry, we start a series of reflections on lessons from the journey. Our own journeys have taught us that othering does little to get us closer to the beloved kingdom. Jesus reminds us today in our gospel reading that we're not called to pick winners and losers, but to love all those in need. On this Pride Sunday, I'm reminded of the duality of pride itself, that it both celebrates who we are and how far we've come, but also challenges us to keep doing the work. And that work is not just about what we need. The harder work is to engage with those, even those who may hold the most hateful thoughts about who we are and who we love, not to accept what they have to say, but to refuse to be diminished by segregating ourselves from the conversation itself. For every member of the LGBTQ community and our straight allies, I wonder today what it would look like if we took the lessons from our own journeys, the tremendous reservoir of strength and courage we've amassed, and made a choice to engage more broadly, not even necessarily to change someone's mind, but to stand witness to a greater truth of the love that we find in Jesus. It's a tall order. And there are days I sometimes think it's an unfair ask. But if we make that choice, our witness need not be about winning or losing, silencing or embracing, 
but rather a choice to live in Jesus' example with an acknowledgement that all of humanity, those with whom we agree and those with whom we disagree, has a seat at God's table and all are part of the beloved kingdom. And wouldn't that create a report that spreads throughout the district?